Hello and welcome to the Political Notebook. I'm Billy Robb. I'm a high school teacher. And I'm Robert Robb, an editorial columnist for the Arizona Republic and Billy's dad. This week, we're going to talk about gun control. In the wake of the latest uh, mass shooting last week on Valentine's Day in Parkland, Florida, which saw 17 dead, and now we see uh, students, uh, students and survivors speaking out and organizing marches and, and really looks like that the conversation about gun control is going to be maintained, sustained for a while. And so the, the national conversation will have some staying power. So we're going to put in our two cents here, uh, here in the podcast. I want to start out with a little bit of historical context, uh, going all the way back to the Second Amendment. Uh put into place, you know, during that time, pretty much everyone had guns for uh, protection and, and hunting, uh, and it was a crucial element that allowed the Americans to defeat the British in the Revolutionary War, called them Minutemen, people they could call on, they would just get their guns and, and, and join in to the ragtag military operations. Uh, so in 1787, uh, written into the Constitution, uh, as the Second Amendment uh, and the Bill of Rights is this, and I quote, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And that has been uh, kind of the cornerstone for gun laws is that uh, they may not be infringed kind of started with a little bit of restrictions uh, when the machine guns started to come out um, around the time of Prohibition, when the, the gangsters started using the Tommy guns. And then it, again, with some of the assassinations of, uh, of the, of the mid-early presidents, you saw um, some resistance there. So the first uh, real laws that restricted it. Um, there was a Firearms Act of 1934 and a Gun Control Act of 1938. Um, and then later on, one of the key decisions to interpret the Second Amendment was in 2008, uh, D.C. versus Heller. In Washington, D.C., they, they had a law that pretty much prevented people from using uh, as a, firearms. It, well, as a practical matter, it it prohibited the ownership of even a handgun in, in Washington, D.C. There was a permit process in place to own a handgun, um, but um, the government wasn't processing any permits, uh, and that was the scheme uh, that was brought before the U.S. Supreme Court, um, and uh, that was the first occasion where the U.S. Supreme Court interpreted clearly the Second Amendment to convey an individual right to own a firearm. So there's effectively a ban on individuals carrying carrying guns, and uh, went all through the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said uh, on a five-to-four decision that they can a state or a city cannot outright ban individuals' possession of guns, uh, but that said that it can limit the types of weapons that it allows and it can impose uh, further restrictions on how to go about purchasing and regulations on acquiring a gun. And, and subsequent to the Heller decision, uh, the Supreme Court, much to the disappointment of a lot of uh, 
gun rights uh, activists and lobbies have has declined uh, to strike down and in many cases even consider uh, striking down um, regulation of the right to bear arms. So um, it wasn't it it was a landmark decision, um, but it has not resulted in a judicial firewall against additional gun control legislation uh, that many on the right hoped and many of the left feared at the time that Heller uh, was decided. So, so you're saying there has been there have been laws that restrict guns that have not been struck down according to this decision. Yes, the, the, the court has been um, very reluctant to consider additional cases, uh, and the result of that has been to let stand uh, various state and local efforts to restrict um, elements uh, and regulate elements of the ownership of guns. The D.C. Heller decision was very close, five to four. You had uh, Justice Scalia uh, writing the majority decision and uh, a couple strong dissents. Do you see that as properly decided? Do you think the Second Amendment guarantees an individual's right to carry guns and not just uh, as many have it interpreted, the minority interpreted, that it was for a well-regulated militia um, first and not necessarily individuals caring for protection? I I do think Scalia um, properly interpreted uh, the Second Amendment, although I will say uh, there's a very learned discussion um, in uh, several of the opinions that is for people who want to immerse themselves uh, into uh, the culture of those of that time with respect to to um, guns both the Scalia opinion and and uh, the primary dissent are very informative and educational but if you just think of the context of the time uh, the people who crafted and approved the Second Amendment would have been outraged at the notion that a government could take away someone's gun or prevent someone from owning a gun. Uh, so while the amendment is oddly worded, uh, I think it's uh, correctly and in- was correctly interpreted by Scalia that the heart of it was the individual right to own a firearm that could not be infringed. And the malicious stuff was just sort of an argument, but only one argument as to why that was a good idea. Yeah, I mean, I think they'd also be shocked if you know you told them, okay, there's uh, there's a there's thing called you know tanks and, and and nuclear bombs, and there's zero chance you could ever do anything to take over a, a state on your own. And we have uh, just random people in these mass cities that are. In, in control of weapons like you've never even seen that can shoot uh, high power bullets out out into the uh, into the masses and they're being used uh, to um, on a fairly frequent occasion uh, to conduct mass mass shootings and killing uh, innocent people spreading fear there's there's no question that the lethality of firearms exceed the imagination of uh, anyone alive uh, at that time. Um, but if the argument is that the Second Amendment is anachronistic, 
and there is a decent argument that can be made to that effect, um, there's a process to amend the Constitution. Um, you, you don't, uh, at least in my judgment, uh, jettison its original meeting uh, if it no longer meets the time. Um, there's a process to amend the Constitution to uh, take into consideration changing circumstances. Yeah, and I actually went back and I was reading some of those arguments uh, before we're recording here, and I actually came in <clears throat> thinking, like, kind of pretty sure that I didn't think that there was an individual protection to carry, but I was I was convinced a little bit by reading Scalia's uh, Scalia's majority arguments and then just kind of the the caution of you know do we really want to start saying this this amendment's really not working for us right now so let's uh, let's get rid of major major parts of it i i read a very long time ago a very interesting um uh, essay uh, by a uh, leading uh, liberal uh, intellectual who basically said uh, to be consistent liberals should want the second amendment interpreted the same way that they believe that the First Amendment should be interpreted to maximally protect uh, the individual right of action. Yeah. But um, Heller has not been the stumbling block uh, to additional gun control measures short of abolition or effectively depriving people of any ability to own anything. That was originally, as I said, hoped on one side and feared by another. I actually think, based upon the Supreme Court's forbearance in taking additional lawsuits, uh, it is granting a pretty wide berth for um, action to regulate regulate that right. Yeah, and it does say there, right in the uh, right in there in the decision, in the Heller decision, that that's. Uh, states and cities may uh, prohibit uh, certain types of, of guns and impose, quote, the conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms. Um, so why, So if it lays that restriction, why, are, why isn't there not a, why is there not a current ban on assault weapons like the ones we see in Florida? Well, in broadening it, broadening it to include other um, elements of, game, of gun control that are commonly advocated, it's pretty simple. There are more votes against it uh, than there are votes for it. Um, there is majority sentiment in favor of a lot of um, gun control measures, but in terms of intensity, uh, the extent to which people are actually going to vote on the issue, there's simply more votes in the Second Amendment side versus uh, the uh, gun control side. Is that a function? You know, wh why is that the case? If there is if there is popular support for for stricter gun control and including uh, perhaps banning assault weapons. Uh, what do you? What is your response to the accusation that the reason that's there is because of interest groups like the NRA that are uh, maybe not speak for the majority of, of people, but have a lot of influence and, and donate a lot of money to campaigns of people who make those decisions and lay those votes? Well, the, the NRA actually um, 
isn't a heavy contributor uh, to uh, elected officials. Instead, they are very effective at communicating with their members and influencing votes. Uh, I don't at all uh, dispute that a lot of these measures have uh, majority support, um, some strong majority support, but that isn't what matters politically. What matters politically is how many votes will be based upon that issue. Uh, and on what side are there more votes that will be decided? And it's simply the case that in the United States, uh, there's more votes to be had against gun control than in favor of it. Now, in terms of why there is such fierce, fierce resistance uh, among uh, gun rights advocates uh, to even modest steps with respect to regulation. There's really two reasons for it. And I'm not a gun guy, um, but uh, people who are gun guys says, say that the term assault weapon, for example, has no practical meaning, uh, that the difference between what's proposed to be banned and what would remain legal is largely cos cosmetic. It's the shape of the weapon, not what the weapon is capable of doing. And then second, there is a fear, uh, and I actually think uh, not a, uh, a irrational fear, that all of this is intended to lead towards confiscation, uh, as happened in Australia. Uh, and I don't think that is an irrational fear because I do believe that's the ultimate goal of the left. So what? Did and you see it in what existed in liberal cities before the Heller decision. I mean, it, Washington, D.C. had effectively banned the ownership of a simple handgun. That is the ultimate goal. So uh, in order to get to a broader political acceptance of some of these measures, you have to overcome the confiscation fear. And simply saying it's irrational, I don't think does the job because it's not irrational. And many on the left are using that as an example for, for an effective uh, change is that there was, there was a law put in place in Australia that made a, made a positive difference. Can you just uh, break down like what what was uh, the it, it, law in Australia? Yeah, it was outright confiscation. They, they uh, banned the private ownership of firearms, uh, confiscated the weapons, uh, provided some uh, compensation to the, to the owners, um, but it was, a, it was confiscation. And when you had uh, Barack Obama after the Sandy Hook um, uh, massacre, uh, cite Australia as an example of a nation that had coped with this problem, all that did was to set um, a fire uh, under the, the fears that the ultimate goal was, was confiscation. And there's a lot of, you know, if you talk about banning uh, assault weapons or, or any type of weapon um, or even, even restricting things, there's always the practical question of if you're not going to go there you know what are you going to do with all the guns that are out there and, and illegal uh illegal sales and, 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 and part of the one of the big problems is the things that fall within the ambit of 
common sense gun control. You hear that all the time. Um, are things that wouldn't have prevented most of these massacres. Uh, the same people would have gotten the same weapons and been able to do the same thing. Now, you may, in, in terms of restricting how many bullets can be fired before a weapon needs to be reloaded, you might reduce um, the numbers of victims. Uh, but uh, so far, people haven't advanced things, which if you applied them in retrospect would have prevented the things that are supposedly justifying uh, their passage. Yeah, and it, it seems to me I know that um, the idea of confiscating guns from people is not going to fly politically, but it seems to me that as many, just as you know, taking the, taking the case in Florida, uh, so many warning signs there, uh, and just in terms of the, the type of gun he was able to get, given all the warning signs, it seems like as many obstacles as you can put in someone's way, you know, waiting periods, background checks, um, I, well, any I, any of those that you could that you could add, banning certain type of guns to, so it's not just so easy to get. Any you know, if you add up a few different obstacles, you could probably prevent um, well, a lot of these from happening. Well, one of the, well, I don't know the extent to which you could prevent a lot of them from happening. I haven't seen a package of reforms which applied retrospectively would have had that result. But um, with respect to the Florida situation, I um, have long advocated that there be a, a civil process whereby family members, the police, healthcare professionals could petition the court to place an individual who's having, having mental health problems on the do not buy list that exists. Um, it would be a civil process. It wouldn't be a criminal process. It would be subject to due process. The person at any point in time could apply to get their ability to buy a firearm reinstated. But if that had been in place, uh, in this particular situation, there might very well have been an, an effort to put him on yeah. a, on a uh, do-not-buy list. That's something that I think that we could do. Yeah. Um, it, it is true that at present, uh, confiscation or even uh, serious regulation uh, is a bridge too far politically. But I'm wondering uh, whether this isn't another issue that your generation will change. That certainly happened uh, with uh, gay marriage. Um, it, it, was a, it was something that the tide of time was definitely going to change. Uh, you see a, a lot of young people um, high schoolers uh, getting politically active on this issue. Um, I know that there's a, there's a lot of young hunters, uh, but what's your sense of it? Is this something that the march of time and a generational change will change the political dynamic or, or not? The students that are speaking out right now, the high school students that, that I'm teaching that are talking right now, they grew up, they were born after Columbine. So school shootings and mass shootings have, have always been something that they've 
they've known about and experienced. <clears throat> and, you know, it's, uh, it's just there when it, when it happens, like, uh, you know, it's kind of, people talk about it. And you, if you hear about someone like being angry or having a gun, it's like, Oh, is that, you know, it's, it's kind of a joke, but not like, and, and you're here and you're seeing things like, uh, schools doing drills right now. And I was, I was reading on Reddit earlier that there was a school in Florida that, uh, t- today had, had a fire alarm go off. And as soon as the fire alarm goes off, you got people, uh, you had people looking around at each other saying, should we actually go outside right there? Wondering if a fire drill goes off, am I about to get mowed down by a gun? Um, and I think that the combination of, of, of that reality, seeing it, uh, blasted all over, uh, you know, all over the news uh, every single time and almost like kind of the tired routine that you're, we're seeing played out over and over. Um, that uh, I think that combined with uh, the frustration uh, of seeing what's been happening the last two years um, with the government and with the national government and with, with Trump, I think there's a pent up anger that's, that's already there. And I think with those, with those high school kids, uh, in Florida, it's just, a um, you know, just exploded into, you know, this anger of like, we're, we're not gonna, we're not gonna sit around and, and let this happen anymore. Although but the- I, I do think that, uh, the perceptions are are different, and I, I I really don't think the goal is to confiscate everyone's everyone's guns. I know that's that's the fear, but it's just like, can't we just have some like background checks that you know the confiscation um, policy that you that you described? Can't we just do that and ban like the AR fifteen? You know, isn't there just something? And I and I just hope for these kids that at least something, you know, it's <clears throat> it would be demor demor like I don't. They don't seem like they're easily demoralized, and I think I see momentum coming around across the country for this issue. Um, but I, I, I hope that uh, this will change the political will uh, to get some get some real legislation happening. Now, paradoxically, um, I think the chances of something happening under Trump are greater uh, than the odds were of them happening uh, under Obama. And part of it, part of it's also been overreach by the gun control lobby. A universal background check uh, was close to passage. It got hung up over things like uh, if an uncle wants to give uh, his nephew a hunting rifle for Christmas, does he have to go through a licensed dealer and subject the nephew to a background check. If someone has a rifle that they want to sell on eBay or put up something on their Facebook account asking, I got this rifle, anyone buy it? Uh, Does that have to go through a licensed dealer? Does it have to be subject to a background check? Uh, And uh, even though there were those who were willing to vote for a Republicans who are willing to vote for a background check if some of those private party sales were excluded from it. The gun control advocates refused uh, to permit even those kind of narrow common sense exclusions. Uh, so it hasn't been all, it has been mostly uh, heel dragging by 
Republicans and the gun uh, rights lobby. But it's also in part been overreach and an unwillingness to find middle ground. Yeah, and I, and I think I hear that. I hear that frustration from the, for the young people too. Is like, you know, those are those are obvious details and compromises that need to get paid, but or need to get made. But you know, if you're the Congress people, you are the representative leaders. That is your job. Your job is to negotiate uh, details to to make a, a law that's within the constitutional norms, but that also are going to make a difference and save lives. Well, we were... Jeff Flake was seeking those kind of common sense exceptions to a universal uh, background check law. Um, The um, supporters of it refused, and uh, Bloomberg started a million-dollar uh, negative advertising campaign against Flake, um, uh, claiming that he was opposed to yeah. common sense and gun control. And the other thing that doesn't help is the, um, you know, is kind of the un, the unfair stats that come out as as a result of this. You know, everyone on the left is complaining about fake news and manipulation, uh, but you know the one of the most widely circulated stats was like there's been 18 mass shooting there's been 18 school shootings this year and in the other country there was in their countries have been 18 in the last 20 years there has not been 18 school shootings we think of school shootings we think of something but they included in that stat like um you know a gun going off in the parking lot and it kind of like was in uh the area of a school or like there was, they just use such a broad interpretation so that it's easy to, to come back and say, no, that's not true because of X, Y, Z. And now we're just not even on the same planet. But um, as I'd, I said, very paradoxically, um, moving beyond the gridlock may be something that Trump can accomplish. And at least the, say, the early indications are that he's interested in doing that. He's trying to, to, uh, He's looking at trying to get some support for uh, making the do not buy list uh, more comprehensive by including more uh, past uh, criminal behavior uh, in it. Um, And I think he might even be susceptible uh, to supporting some restrictions such as the number of bullets that can be fired before you have to reload. We'll see. And, yeah. and and wouldn't that be um, a huge political irony <laughs> if uh, well, Trump is the the guy that that breaks the logjam? Well, like I've said many times before in this podcast, I hope to share your optimism about um, about that and what what Trump might be able to to do. Um, I also think it's worth noting, like that, like okay, let's say this kid uh, Nicholas Cruz doesn't have a gun, can't shoot people. Like that's, that is, um, a necessary, I guess a necessary goal and function of a country. How can we prevent that from happening? And, but and, if, and I think the civil commitment process that I described could have in that case, right, I would, prevented him from owning a gun. Yeah, I would be, I would be all for that. But, you know, let's say that that happens, it prevents it, but you still got to, you could still got a resentful, angry kid. And, um, Things things can be done at the, at the community level. Uh, you know, it, it's it's hard to to get national law changed, but I think there are things we could do at the local or, or state level to just just help uh, 
you know, just help people's well-being and sense of belonging. I think public schools can do a better job uh, of um, creating a, you know, creating a more supportive uh, space for people to connect with each other and, and, and communicate and, and have mental health. Funding is obviously a part of that. And I also think that, uh, you know, uh, we need to have another conversation maybe about, uh, you know, just the socialization of, uh, of young men and, and, and the upbringing of boys and what, you know, what's, what's causing them to go into violence and how can we steer that into, into more pro-social adventures well, the, or, or outlets for, uh, for their emotions. And, and the consequences of, um, violence by young men, uh, occurs far more frequently on a daily basis right. outside of the schoolyard. Mm-hmm. So, um, this is not strictly a mass shooting at schools problem. Right. That is what attracts our attention, understandably. Um, but uh, the larger challenge is the more mundane day-to-day uh, violence that occurs, particularly in the inner cities, um, every day. Yep. So we'll finish there. Uh, thank you very much for listening. This is the Political Notebook Podcast. And uh, you can tune in every week. Subscribe to us in any, any podcasting app, including Apple Podcasts. Thanks.